It's the history of football we knows about And we want to expand what we know We'll become such intelligent gentry With every kick-to-kick show Beginning in the time 1870s Right through to the modern day Tune in for Timmy Coops and the Kazman To hear what they all have to say All right. Well, the first question we usually ask, um, obviously, you're, you're an Essendon supporter, which is great because I don't get to speak to a lot of Essendon supporters. So, Yeah, I, I grew up. My, um, my mother's a Collingwood fan and my dad's a Saints fan and dad tried his hardest to get me into the St Kilda jumper. I had a little one when I was young, but once I started at school, everyone in the schoolyard that I wanted to be friends with were talking about Tim Watson and Michael Long and uh, so that's that's sort of I, I realised if I wanted to be friends with anyone, I needed to barrack precedence. So it started there, yeah. And um, and then when I remember my first memory of a grand final is 1990, which I was um, nine, I think at the time. Yeah. And um, very similar to me. And yeah, well, with mum and everyone cheering for Collingwood, I was I was sort of cheering the opposite way, and I was, <laughs> probably still wasn't fully attached to Essen at that point. I was still learning about the game, but that, that day I think really become the turning point that I was, I was hating seeing everyone else celebrating this, this Collingwood team thrashing yeah. Essen. So from there, it just took off. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Um, who was your favorite player as a kid? Whose number did you have on your back? Oh, I lost you. Yeah. Well, I always, Always, always loved um, oh, Gavin Wanganine really when, when he came on the scene in 91, 92. Um, just, I think he blew most Essendon supporters away and uh, and I just, I worshipped him and then he won the Brownlow, which cemented that for me, <laughs> but then, then he upped and left, uh, unfortunately, yeah. and uh, and that was just when James Herb was starting to emerge. So I, uh, I quickly jumped on the Herdy bandwagon and uh, he's, he remains the best player I've ever seen. Yeah, nice. Um, best game you've been to? Yeah, uh, I, I was at the 2000 Premiership, so in that sense, it was great. But uh, there was obviously there's been obviously a lot of really close games over the years that just home and away games, I guess, that stick in your memory more. Some of the Anzac Day games were fantastic. Yeah. Uh, some some weren't good either, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, um, I was at the qualifying final in 19, uh, 1999 when we slaughtered Sydney um, in what was technically Lockett's last game. And then and then in 2000 when we kicked the record score against North Melbourne, yeah. 30-odd goals, I think. And then uh, so they stand out. But then probably more recently, the Hawthorne, when we were sort of struggling a bit and we... I can't think exactly what year it was, but when when Kyle Hooker kicked that winning goal, uh, it was round two. We were really no chance to beat the Hawks. I don't think going in, and I just remember I was I don't get very um, outwardly emotional at the footy, but that uh, I was out of my seat and singing and yelling and screaming. It was a fantastic, <laughs> fantastic day. Yeah, nice one. I always say my one of my favourite games was uh, 1992 Anzac Day, Essendon versus Melbourne. We were uh, Melbourne kicked the first goal of the last mm-hmm. quarter. We were forty-seven points down and kicked eight goals in the road to, to steal the game by a point. <laughs> yeah. Actually, that, and then Gavin Wanganeen kicks the winning goal. Yeah. He did from like fifty as well. I'm, I'm going to admit, yeah, I, um, yeah, amazing. With the uh, the lack of football at the moment, I actually went back and watched the last quarter a few days ago. It's fantastic. It's on YouTube, isn't it? So it's great that we can uh, we can watch some of those games. Yeah. How how are you surviving without football at the moment? Yeah, I'm probably lucky in the sense, a bit like you, you're reliving it every day when you're interviewing people and you're you're writing, doing your your podcast and everything. And I'm I'm a bit the same. I'm every waking second is spent working on the footy history books I'm working on. So yeah. I sort of, in that sense. Nothing's changed for me, but it's it's more the weekends and you don't have 
what we usually have to look forward to. And obviously the sports section of the newspaper is pretty ordinary <laughs> at the moment. There's a lot of best oh. of lists and things like that. Yeah. But <laughs> They're really screaming the Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, we're getting very desperate, I know. And we're, but thankfully I, I get to live it every day. And so I'm surviving okay. It's more, as you know, with the kids in the background and uh, throughout the day yeah. uh, when they when they can't, when you can't do much with them outside or anything, can't go anywhere, that makes it a bit hard. Yeah, it really does. Um, let's get into your uh, your writing now because we've, we've wanted to get you on for quite a while to talk about some of your different books. Um, mm. You've got the King Richard book, uh, Larrikins and Legends. Um, are you up to, you've got five published books now, am I right? Yeah, five of my own and six co-written. So another one that you'd, you'd like is an incident history I've done, uh, Always Striving. So yeah, I've got that, one. that was a that was a labour of love, that one as well. And uh, got to relive a lot of the great moments. But uh, yeah, so I'm, and I'm working on, got one coming out soon, Peter Crimmins' biography, the Hawthorne champ who uh, passed away in the prime of his life from cancer. So I'm, I'm in the process of finalising that at the moment. Fantastic. And uh, I think last time I spoke to you, you had a few other books lined up as well. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit of a Hawthorne flavour at the moment. I've got a Peter Hudson biography I'm working on, which if Crimo's out later this year, Hudo's hopefully next year, we'll see. And uh, and also another one on the Hawthorne and Melbourne when they nearly merged in 96, Ooh, which wow. uh, again, that'll be probably next year maybe as well and then a couple of other, yeah a few other ideas but uh yeah i probably need to focus on one or two at the moment yeah do you um do you feel like you're cheating on SM when you're doing like these you've got the carlton one yeah. and you've got this hawthorne one yeah and i wrote a help co-wrote a north melbourne history and yeah you you, <laughs> you do until you start to meet you realise that the people uh, involved with the club throughout the year I'm writing about are fantastic people, so you yeah. get a bit of a soft spot for, uh, for the Hawks and the Blues through that, I guess, and it probably changes the way you look at certain events because as it's probably the same with you, you grew up hating Carlton with a passion and absolutely. probably even more than Collingwood, I think. I just, yep, I, yeah. I absolutely agree. Hate them. Yeah, yeah. And so... But my, my tune changed when I uh, did my uh, Larrikins and Legends book because they were, they were fantastic blokes. So it just changed my perspective. So in a way, it's good that I'm cheating on the Bombers because I'm getting a better appreciation for everything. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how did you get into writing these books to begin with? Yeah, I, I, I can't really lay out a, a recommended path that I that I took to get there for all the young people that might be listening. I um, I was always fascinated in from a young from when I started following Essendon really in the early nineties. I had a real passion for the history of just footy in general. So I was more interested in when a story would be in the paper on a thing from the seventies than I probably was even for the current day. So I I just always had a passion for it, but I didn't study it. I didn't uh, seek out a pathway or anything. It was just I had a lot of uh, had a lot of, or have a lot of mental health issues in my life. So I was in and out of jobs and uh, just struggling a little bit. And I just um, I just decided one day, basically, I'd been collecting scrapbooks and newspaper articles and things for you know twenty years. And I just decided I just felt comfortable in myself that I could try and write a book. I didn't have any idea what that meant I didn't know who I needed to start asking I didn't know anything really but I just I just needed to do it and as I got into the process and started to meet people and do interviews and all that that's when I realized I'd probably found my calling if I can say that without sounding too wanky as just said you know I just <laughs> I just found what I was meant to do I think and it so that was probably late 20s when that bug hit me yeah, but it wasn't uh, wasn't plotted out as such. So you, did you study writing or, or anything like that or you just suddenly just started doing it? Yeah, no, I just started doing it. I, wow. I, it was funny, you know, I like I did finish year 12 and then just had jobs here and there, but I didn't go to university and I was interviewing George Hassel played in the mid-40s. You'll be hearing more about him, I guess, in okay. future episodes. Yeah. Um, Played in a couple of premierships under Dick Reynolds, and I was interviewing George the year before he died. And his daughter was there, and she said, "You know what you're doing? You could turn into a degree." And I, being the uh, the uh, uneducated country hick that I was, thought uh, I didn't know what she was talking about. And um, 
but it sort of stuck in my mind and I went and I went and eventually I went plucked up the courage and approached a couple of people at Victoria University in Footscray and just just said what I was doing and they they really liked what I was starting to put together in terms of the interviews I was doing and all that and uh, they got me in as a special inclusion in a master's degree. Yeah. Rob Hess and Matthew Klugman there, a couple of uh, well-known historians in footy and they, they got me in and taught me to write. I, uh, I Yeah, so I ended up completing a master's degree on Dick and his um, impact on the Essendon community and then that, excuse me, that became part of the, the book. Uh, yeah following year that got published yeah and then and then I've now done a PhD on Alex Jezelenko so it's you know through through Federation University and Key yeah. Reeves there and I so that again just come out of following my passion I think that again it was nothing nothing planned because now you're Dr Dan Eddie aren't you yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> I, know, yeah. I make my brothers call me that but uh, <laughs> oh, that's awesome but again that's just come from just chasing your dreams you know i didn't uh, i didn't set out to try and achieve that or anything. no that's a great story though i didn't realize that and that kind of gives hope to other people like me who you know i'm not necessarily a writer but feel like i could try and write a book and you know that's oh definitely yeah yeah go for it mate no um i remember last time i caught up with you 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 gave me some advice, or you said something along the lines of it's much easier to write stories about the uh, the older players or the ex players because their stories are much more interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah, and and by interesting, I mean they're more prepared to tell you more. The we know with today's players, they're a bit more um, almost restricted on what they can say from club level, and no one wanting to upset anyone or uh, yeah. heaven forbid, tell the truth and reveal a weakness or whatever whereas the past players are a lot more um open to just telling it how it is so for someone like me it's fantastic in um helping me to understand stories and people and grand finals and things like that from that aren't told at the time so um and sometimes it's not the biggest name either it can be someone who's probably never been interviewed but he played a handful of games and he just happened to be on board at a certain era and yeah. uh and they actually took more in than what the, the well-known player did. So sometimes they can be really rewarding interviews as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, let's get to Dick Reynolds then. Why did you choose to write a book about him? Yeah, well, I I can probably thank James Hurd in a way and my mum because I we lived up we lived up northern Victoria at the time, up just past Shepparton, town called Newmerka. Yep. And um, I was very lucky. My family would drive us down to Melbourne quite a lot for footy and a massive trip with four kids and uh, you know so anyway we James Hurd had just won the 96 Brownlow medal and mum and my brother Barrick for North Melbourne who were in the grand final so mum said come we'll go down to the grand final parade first time and it was just an enormous thrill to be there and Hurdy went past and then we're walking back through the Burke Street Mall and crowds of people and this old man in a trench coat was just walking on his own through the middle of the mall and I immediately spotted that it was Dick Reynolds and so I ripped a bit of paper out of mum's handbag and found a pen and sprinted up and Mr Reynolds can I have your autograph and he was he looked around and he was sort of surprised that anyone had noticed him and for me that was the ultimate shock to think how could no one not notice you you know because you're the king so yeah. I and he was very humble and nice and so I got his autograph and then so that sparked my interest in Dick and then as the years went on, I always, I'd always sort of glance in bookshops hoping there'd be a book on him and there never was. So that was part of the inspiration when I finally thought, what will I write about? Um, Dick Reynolds straight away. So that's how it started, yeah. And then what, like, when did you start the book? Um, yeah, 2010. Yeah, I, I rang, no, I emailed Glenn McFarlane at the Herald Sun, who I didn't know, and he could have just ignored me, but I just I read, I emailed Glenn and said, look, I've just got this idea. I don't know how to start it. I don't know what to do. And thankfully, he got back to me and um, just gave me that initial pat on the back to say, mate, you've got to do this story. And without that, if he had just ignored me, I might not have followed it up. So I'm very thankful to him. And But he that's how it started. And then I just... I didn't know what to do. I must have sounded pretty silly to some of the guys I approached, but I, you know, I started with Jack Jones, who passed away just recently. He yeah. um, he was the first bomber I interviewed, and 
in the Bomber Hall of Fame at Windy Hill and it just started from there and then I'd get another number for someone else and then I'd ring and no, none of these guys knew who I was and but almost, there's probably only a couple that said that wouldn't talk to me out of the hundreds I've interviewed since that just started from one guy saying yep and then I could say oh, I spoke with Jack and then so then they'd help me and then and it's amazing how it spread and the doors opened for me you know and it I was just very fortunate that it um I I knocked on doors at the start that I was nervous to knock on but by knocking on them I, I was surprised by the positive response and I think a fair bit of that was because I mentioned the name Dick Reynolds so yeah they um they were happy to talk so that was the main process, just going to speak to as many different people who played with Dick and knew Dick throughout his life? Yeah, and again, I didn't go in thinking I need to speak to this amount of people or it sort of just grew and grew and the, you'd speak to someone else and they'd, they'd say, you know, oh, this bloke was his good friend, he was a news agent. So then they'd give me his number, you know. So I ended up um, travelled to a number of places throughout Australia Um just to track down these people and amazing the yeah so I started off with just Essendon people and then it spread to all people throughout his life so I, I ended up speaking with over over 200 probably that um yeah <laughs> in all walks of life top footballers from Barassi down to uh someone a kid he just met one day in a hospital that uh, was touched by him so yeah wow um, that must have been an incredible experience as well, just going from a fan to suddenly writing this book and meeting legends like Barassi and, um, and Sheedy and I'm sure all those kind of guys as well. It was, um, you just cut out a little bit there, mate. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. No, just like pro- the process of meeting all those players like Sheedy and Barassi and all those champions that you read about as a kid to suddenly... <laughs> You know, you're writing this book and suddenly you're meeting all these people. That must have been amazing. Yeah, it was. It was it was pinch yourself stuff at the start. And um, I got I got taught and I wanted to speak to Alan Jeans. I just thought being a, a great coach and he might have just had a few memories of, of Dick and I think I just wanted to meet Alan Jeans. So <laughs> I contacted him and I went there and he... I thought I was prepared for the interview and he just turned the interview completely on its head and... <laughs> asked everything back at me and I was just unprepared for it. So I just came across as probably a real idiot really. But <laughs> but it taught me more in that hour. I learned more in that hour. I just put the notebook down and thought I'm just going to have to listen to all this. And it yeah. taught me more in that hour about footy and about how I should prepare. Um, and it's it's really was a really was a the process. You couldn't just someone couldn't just teach you that interview process. You had to go and do it and make the mistakes. And yeah. um, and now I I'm confident enough to barely write a note down before I go and interview someone because um, I now know more about how to approach an interview, how to go if they go off track, where I can take that. And whereas in the past you might get stuck because you're flustered by your list of questions that they've suddenly gone off track from. And yeah. But you're right, um, to sit there with Ken Fraser for three hours and talk footy and uh, <laughs> some people might be five minutes and some people, the longest I've done I think is about six hours. And... <laughs> But, but it's hard as, you know, you turn up and you don't know how good someone's memory is and mine's terrible. So I'm always impressed by what I can, uh, what, what people remember. But some people, um, yeah, so you, you sort of turn up and you don't know whether you're going to be there five minutes or your whole day is going to be taken up. So you, it's uh, it, it, it's always a bit of a wait and see. But, again, you, you learn how to adapt to each environment. But, yeah, I don't think anyone could have just taught me how to do it. I had to stuff up a lot before I worked it out. Yeah, and now you've got it down to a fine art. Oh, uh, yeah, you're probably always learning. Someone will always throws something at you, but I'm I'm a lot more comfortable now to to be able to do that. I think I think I build a rapport with people in, and that might be why they open up to me. I'm not sure, but I I, I generally have really good experiences with everyone I interview. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Um, all right. Well, let's let's uh, start to talk a bit about Dick Reynolds then. Um, one thing I didn't realise was he was—he grew up a Carlton supporter, the enemy. Yeah, and wanted desperately to be a Carlton supporter. That's the thing is, his his dad had grown up in in Carlton, not just you know just walking distance from Princess Park, and but then they moved out to Aberfeldy before Dick was born, and but they kept going to watch Carlton games all the time, even though they were technically in Essendon's 
recruiting area. Um, Dick became a lolly boy at Princess Park, as did his brothers, and and then he, he started to show that he was going to be a good footballer in his junior days. So Dick's father happened to work with Car- the brother of Carlton's captain at the time, who I think was Colin Martin, and um, excuse me. And in 1932, I think it was, he went um, Colin's. Colin's brother agreed, helped set up a, a trial for Dick to turn up and train at the club. So he went there pretty excited and uh, and they just ignored him, basically. There was a lot of kids there, so I can imagine it was easy to ignore, but they ignored him and then so he was pretty upset about that, but he thought, I'll go back again Thursday night, went back. They gave him nothing again and he, he sort of left and just said, I'm not, not going back to Carlton again. He was too dejected. Yeah, fair enough. And that was the that was the one that got away for them. Yeah. Um, the other thing I, I really learned from your book was that his brother Tom Reynolds had this pretty incredible career as well. I, I had no idea he had a brother who played. <laughs> Either did I when I started uh, researching. So I was blown away by what he's achieved as well. You know, but Tom Tom wasn't as um, I guess you could say he wasn't as dedicated training wise as Dick was, but he still. Um, he still played 109 games and kicked 361 goals and led Essendon's goal kicking one, two, three, four times. Uh, yeah. And at one point kicked the club record 71 goals in 1939. So he, he was a good player, you know, and he yeah. sort of that, that he could pinch it in the ruck, but he probably played forward mostly and, but he never really got himself as fit as Dick did. But yeah, no, he was uh, he was really really good for for a couple of years there. He was one of the best forwards going around, I guess. Yeah, and how that how our goal kicking record until uh, you know a man came John Coleman came along. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's no mean feat. No, um, it isn't. And seventy one goals in uh, at that time. Only really Gordon Coventry and a couple of others. Bob Pratt were sort of dominating, but other than that. And that was in the 30s as well when we were pretty rubbish also. That's right. Yeah, there wasn't much success. So um, he's sort of there at the start of the changeover into a successful era. But, yeah, they wouldn't have been getting as much ball going their end. No. Um, So early days, Dick Reynolds was compared to Hayden Bunton. Do you agree with that uh, comparison? Yeah, probably in the fact that they were both very... Movie star, good looking. Uh, they, they, you know, they were the, the Shane Crawford and the Chris Judd of their time, I guess, in terms yeah. of popularity and and the way they dominated games and uh, and they just looked picture perfect. So that probably attracted them to a lot of people. But um, and both, ironically, uh, both are the first to win three Brownlows each. So they're they're always intertwined in that sense. And uh, there are similarities, Dick. Dick was a couple of years behind Bunton, so he was very—he was his one of his favourite players when he started in the league. So he was very eager to emulate him, and I think in that sense, yeah, he—he he did. But he probably went past Bunton. Oh, oh, that's my opinion. He probably went past him just because uh, he had a few more strings to his bow, I think, than Hayden. I, I don't know. Hayden didn't go, didn't dominate up forward as much as Dick did, and probably. We can discuss it when you're ready, but he, I felt Dick become one of the early dominant ruck rovers as opposed to just a rover. And yeah. uh, and I think that's what maybe set him apart from Bunton. But uh, if you, <laughs> you could, you quite happily take Hayden any day of the week as well. Yeah. No, I quite like there's a story you tell in the book, pretty early in the book, where uh, Dick Reynolds actually goes to watch Hayden Bunton working at a uh, clothing shop. Yeah, we. I guess we're spoiled today with TV and uh, millions of pictures in the newspaper and all that stuff, whereas Dick really had a picture in the newspaper to go off and he also had no TV and all he had was if he was at a game watching or so he's, he's at the dinner table uh, the week before he was playing Fitzroy for the first time and his, his dad said to him, why don't we know he works in the city. At, uh, it was called Foy and Gibson's, which was yeah. near, near Myers there in, on the corner of Burke Street there. And he, uh, he said he works as a floor walker, which I think just means he gets paid just to walk around and look good in suits and things like that. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. he said, why don't you go and go down on the Friday night and just watch him, just watch how he moves. And it was a, it was a pretty genius idea, really. And so Dick took his girlfriend Jean down and they went and uh, just sort of – 
I think loitered at the back or out of sight and just watched him as he moved between people and different. Yeah. It's hard to imagine what he must have been taking into account, but he it worked. He he, he said it really helped him the next, you know, on the on the Saturday. Yeah, that's a, that's a good story. I really enjoyed that one. Um, yeah, I guess the the comparison between the two really came to the fore in uh, the final round of 1934, in a game that you know ultimately you could say cost Bunton a fourth Brownlow, but gave Reynolds his third Brownlow. So, quite an interesting uh, game that one. Yeah, it really is. It's um, it's Dick needed. Well, well, they didn't know the votes at the time, but Hayden was, Hayden had had a great year. He was a uh, favourite for the Brownlow, and he turned on another beauty at um, they were at Brunswick Street, weren't they? And he turned on another beauty and uh, was probably in in most people's eyes. I think he was best on the ground. I looked at every of the main newspapers at the time, and he was clearly voted best in all the papers. And uh, but Dick remembered that as Hayden walked off the field, he put his arm around. The umpire and said, "I played pretty well today." Umpire must have got another three votes. Yeah. And uh, as everyone believed, well, Dick, Dick certainly believed that uh, that cost Hayden three votes that day because uh, he was he was easily best on. He reckons the umpire was uh, affronted by the fact that he was uh, being t- being bribed, not bribed, but just sort of hinted that uh, I must have got another three. And as it turned out, Dick. Won the Brownlow by one vote, so and then Hayden got no votes that day, so that uh, <laughs> that most likely cost Hayden a fourth, and maybe would have had Dick a two-time winner. Yeah, no, it's it's, a, it's so interesting as well, and it kind of paints Reynolds in that picture of you know the fair player who's not trying to you know posturize for votes, but then Hay- Hayden Buttons, you know, asking for votes. For sure, yeah, and I, well, from all I've read on Hayden, the he was probably a more outwardly flamboyant and uh, player than Dick, uh, person than Dick. I think he was probably a bit more confidently outspoken than Dick was. I don't know that Dick really bragged about his feats. And just from what I've read from Hayden, I get the impression maybe Hayden was a bit more um, aware of his feats, if you can put it that way. Even though he, yeah. you know, he, from all reports, he was a brilliant, brilliant man. But I, it, I just get that impression that he was probably a bit more willing to say that, whereas Dick would never consider saying oh, I was best on ground or anything like that. Yeah, um, yeah. So the comparisons between the two are pretty prevalent in those in the thirties, where they both obviously won three Brownlow medals, but in teams that didn't make finals. Um, mm. Now, there's talk, you mentioned in your book that um, I think some South Australian clubs tried to lure Dick over to play for them. How did Essendon manage to, to hang on to him? It, it, <laughs> we, uh, it's pretty amazing, really, isn't it? That, uh, yeah, he, Essendon, the club had no money and other clubs were trying to entice him to leave. And there was one particular in South Australia um, and it really showed... It really showed the the strength of the community football that the VFL was at the time, and it would have been the same in Collingwood and 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 uh, everywhere else. Where uh, when word got out that Dick was looking at signing in for South Australia for one of the teams in in South Australia, which just I uh, can't think of at the moment, but they um, he he'd gone over there. It looked like it was probably a signed and sealed thing and he was going to leave at the prime of his career and then so someone at Essendon found him found him a job locally which uh, enabled him to stay which was uh, it's hard to believe but that, they actually put out a plea and I, I was able to find the uh, the letter to members and it said oh, if you've got a second I'll read it to you yeah, it's yeah. from from the secretary at Essendon and it says uh, ladies and gentlemen to obtain the services of our brilliant player Dick Reynolds, uh, your committee have made arrangements for him to start a grocery and dairy produce round uh, throughout the suburb. Uh, uh, and to make a success, uh, your cooperation and assistance is necessary. So if you're able to place your a portion of your business with Dick, it will be greatly appreciated by the committee. Uh, so that's how they were. They promoted it and marketed it so that uh, so that they could keep Dick in the suburb, and it worked because. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I even found a couple of people who remember Dick going around the streets with just a cart, just a, a cart, and I think he got a, a van type thing eventually. And yeah, so that was uh, that was the unique way they found to keep him at Essendon. 
Yeah. Um, would you also say they offered him the coaching? That's kind of how Baggett got kicked out and he got offered the coaching role. Was that part of it? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's couldn't find anything in paper to confirm that, but it comes across as that's probably what happened. And I think Baggett himself, Jack Baggett, believed that himself. And he'd been a great at uh, Richmond, hadn't he? And, but sort of 1938 into, into the start of 1939 was around that time when they were trying to keep Dick and uh, and they're probably a bit sick of the lack of success and Dick's arguably the best player in the game at the time. And so captain coach was the in vogue thing at the time. Jack Dyer, eventually, he took it on and a few others. And so it made sense. And they so they it's as, it looks as if they sacked Baggett or that's they certainly had a disagreement between Jack and the committee over different things and I think he got wind of what was possibly happening in the background. So that's how it happened and Dick got asked and after just a few games in 1939 and uh, shared it for the first season with um, with Harry Hunter, chairman of selectors, and then from the next year he took it on himself, which was proved an inspired choice. Yeah, because as soon as he took over, you know, success suddenly came. Was, was that a coincidence, do you think? Uh, part the players they they were starting to have at the club, and with the war about to start to happen, uh, there was also it was also Essendon were lucky they had quite a few players that were in essential services like the fire brigade in particular. Um, so some key players were able to stay, and Melbourne, which had been a great club around that time too, started to lose players early in the forties due to the war, as did Collingwood and. So the timing probably helped, but Essen was starting to get some real quality coming through their, um, the Essendon District League at the same time. So it was a blend of things, but then I think just the the brilliance of, of Reynolds as well helped to uh, lead them into that because he was – so often he was best on the ground <laughs> during that period. Yeah. I, was, I was amazed by just how consistent he was. Yeah, so they yeah they made a prelim in 1940, lost the grand final in 41, so they really kind of were building up to it. Um, I think you yeah. made a mention as well that Reynolds was really inspired by, I think it was the Geelong 1937 premiership team and the way they moved the ball um, and just, you know, he introduced like a handballing sort of style of play into the team when he took over. Yeah, for sure. I, I um, You're catching me on the fly with some of these names, so I can't remember <laughs> the guy's name, but there was, a, there was a bloke at Geelong, you might even know it, but uh, through Dick's uh, state games, he went on one of the... Uh, the staff, I guess, that were there as part of those state trips was uh, the Geelong secretary, who I'm sorry, I can't remember, but he he struck up a friendship with him and he started telling him about uh, how, how Geelong played and, and they talked a lot about how to make the game quicker for that period. It was, still wasn't as quick as today, obviously, but they they just talked about ways to maybe play a bit more attacking and, and Dick credits that with... Uh, being one of the philosophies that really drove how he wanted his team to play, so we can we can thank Geelong in that sense. Yeah, no, it was um, obviously a big change to the team. All right, so 1942, as you said, um, a lot of the teams were affected by um, players leaving to go to the war, but Essendon was really lucky that we kept the majority of our team because they were essential services. Yeah, I, I've got to think of the names, but I know Hugh Tawney, who was a fantastic ruckman at the time, he was one. I think they, were, uh, well, they worked at the fire brigade, did they? Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. There was, there was quite a few. Wally Buttsworth, who was a champion fullback, uh, sent half back. He was there. Maybe Cess Ruddle. There was a real, there was a heap. And then, then because of the war, you had uh, young Harold Lambert just coming up. He he worked at uh, the ammunitions factory at um, uh, Maribyrnong there. Uh, Dick, I think again they found him a job uh, during the war, and he 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 uh, worked. Uh, if you go near Port Melbourne now, Fisherman's Bend there, they used to have an aircraft building factory there during the war, which is wow. amazing when you look at it today. And um, and Dick was like a foreman there. Um, his daughter Susie told me he definitely was a was a serious worker there. And I, I also wonder uh, how much he knew about the, the designing of aircraft, but. Yeah. Um, but he certainly had a job there, and I think Tom Reynolds might have worked there as well. Um, so there was quite a, f- there was quite a few. I, I reckon it's in the double figures of guys that were actually in, involved in that sense. So that uh, I reckon that 
really helps Essendon remain a powerhouse when, I mean, Geelong have to stop going to the, stop playing games because of the travel yeah. costs and, uh, and Melbourne lose a stack of players, as do Collingwood. So timing helped, but yeah, we were, we were lucky in that sense that we probably had some business connections that helped us. And on top of that, we have a very famous S in the name, uh, Bill Hutchinson, making his debut as well. Yeah. Do you know which ground he debuted at? Uh, I know it was, was it round two and he got knocked back, like Western Oval or Yarraville Oval or something like that? Yarraville Oval, yeah. These, uh, again, another consequence of war. We we lost the MCG, so they were they were playing, Putzgray played at Yarraville Oval, which if you've ever been past there, it's his time, very small ground. Um, and he, he actually turned up at the door and they said, sorry, kid, you can't come in. This is for the team. And he, he said, oh, I'm actually playing today. So... Dick, I think, had to go and say, hang on, he is with us. So they, <laughs> ironically, they became the absolute best of mates, those two. But, um, yeah, Hutchie, he was, you look at him, you look at photos of him in 42 and he just looks like a little kid, but he yeah. very quickly proved himself a potential superstar in the making. Well, I think it was that round two win over Footscray by four points where he made his debut. And I, I'm pretty sure he kept his spot in the team the whole season. Yeah, he didn't lose it again, and he almost hardly ever lost it again in his in his life. He was he was one of the most consistent. It's a very consistent team. You don't I don't think there's a stack of changes during that season from memory. They it's the last couple of guys they lose to the war. They have to go and serve after that. So guys like Ted Lahane and a couple of others that just fortunately were able to stick around for a bit longer before they got forced to leave. So yeah. Um, but when you had Hutchie learning under Reynolds, who's still in his prime at that point, um, yeah. and Hugh Tawney was one of the best ruckmen in the comp at the time, so they were uh, they had they built a really good list. Yeah. Um, did Dick Reynolds have anything to do with Bill Hutchison coming to the team, or was that just a coincidence? Um, he reckons. I found a quote from Dick that said that he, if it wasn't for him going and meeting him at the door, he might not have got his first game. But and I don't think the committee were probably. I think I think it was Dick Dick's suggestion at match committee that he play. Whereas I, I get the sense that maybe a couple of others weren't sure if he was quite physically ready yet. But uh, so in that sense, he was very good to him. But then after he got in, and Dick remained his number one supporter. He always says he's the best player he saw. Um, so I I think Dick was probably a key to his. Confidence, which is, yeah, that's probably the best word. He, he gave him the confidence that he could play at that level. Yeah. Um, so, round one, really good start to the season. We thumped the Demons, uh, the three-time defending champions. And by thump, like a 54-point win over a team that's just won three premierships in a row. Pretty impressive. I think we've had we've got Reynolds kicking six, X will be five, and uh, Whopper Lane kicking four. Oh, I forgot about Whopper Lane. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> he's a... He's a um, he's a bit of a forgotten name, but he was as good as they came at the time. So our forward line was just potent. It nice. really was. Um, yeah, and that's, yeah, Tom Reynolds a benefit of that. But Dick and Hutchie could go forward and kick goals as well. But, um, yeah, we were really lucky with uh, the big timber. That was, the, yeah, that was the other key thing. We had a lot of tall timber that was actually talented tall timber. Mm. Um, so in round two, we've got a four-point win over the doggies, and in round three, we've got a uh, a Ted, uh, sorry, Tom Reynolds goal in the last minute to to beat Carlton by five points. So we're earning some pretty tough wins here. Yeah, wins against teams that um, Dick talks about Carlton. I think later in the season that they were the team that he feared Essendon yeah. couldn't beat. So wins like that were pretty important, and he he always had a bit of a chip on his shoulder with the Blues, I think, and. Uh, so he was always uh, pretty fired up to play the Blues, but they it's the one team that he seemed to feel he had trouble with, so it was a handy, another confidence boost early, and then to belt the pies, obviously, in round yeah, four. Which was at, at Vic Victoria Park, Park. where they yeah. had won for 16 years. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty amazing. So, uh, And that, that all come about from a huge, they kicked seven goals to two in the second term, so suddenly this giant was awakening almost. They're, they're, they're ticking over. They're knocking off the hoodoo teams that Essendon just have not been able to beat for years. You know, absolutely. And I think you talk about it um, when Dick Reynolds took over as coach. That in the thirties, I think they beat Collingwood once, 
And then, you know, the tide kind of turned in 40 or 41 where they, you know, we started actually getting regular wins about against Collingwood. Yeah, we took, I think it took him, good a feeling because Tom was playing. So it must have taken him five years or four years to actually beat Collingwood for the first time. They beat them by a point. I think it might have been a milestone game for him. So it was just, a, you know, it was, they were so dominant, the Pies, in that period. And we, But it's a bit of a changing of the guard. Jock, Jock McHale, you've talked about in the past, he... You know, he um, he was sort of coming towards the end of his successful period and, and just as Dick was going the other way. So we were, we were able to turn, turn the tide uh, over the 40s period and Dick uh, famously uh, hated Collingwood. So he, uh, they, said, they said, for this calm man who never said a swore or said a bad word about anyone, uh, when he yeah. got into the change rooms before a Collingwood game, he... He'd let not swear, but he'd let loose, you know, and he'd be frothing at the mouth and he just, he just had to beat Collingwood. Yeah, um, and so that was a good, you know, it was a 50-something point win against Collingwood. Yeah, 49-point mm. win at Big Park. Uh, and then, so then round six, it's Essendon versus Richmond. Both teams are undefeated. Um, and looking at this match, it looks a little bit like the uh, that St. Kilda Geelong one from about 10 years ago where both teams mm. are coming in undefeated. Really, really close game. Um, if you look at the scores, Essendon have kind of dominated with so many shots on goal, but just it's, it's incredible. Yeah. I think we were five goals, 11 at half time, which is ridiculous. Yeah, that's, yeah. Well, uh, when you get into later episodes, mate, you, you'll realise that the Bombers and awful goal kicking is, uh, becomes a bit of a backbone of ours for, <laughs> oh, oh it, costs, uh, it costs us at least yeah. two premierships. So, yeah, and 47. So, they, um, but Essen and Richmond, it was just the start of a, a two or three year, a bit like, Sydney West Coast a few years ago where every time they played there was something extra about the contest. Jack Dyer's at his prime and Dick Reynolds is at his prime and it's just there's two or three years here where their games are enormous. Yeah. Um, I, I've read something in other books that there was like some kind of issue with the scoreboard here or the umpires but some articles on Argus didn't say anything about it. Have you heard anything about that? Um, I'll get back to you on that one. No, don't, don't stress it because some some articles, no, so, some books suggest that there was uh, an issue with the school, with the siren, and the umpire couldn't hear it, and Essendon kicked the goal, and the, the crowd were up in arms. But then have a look through the old Trove um, archives, and there's nothing really yeah, yeah. papers that suggest it. So I'm not sure okay. where that's come from. Something rings a bell. I have heard something about that, but I don't know. I didn't know if it was that game or somewhere else. But even even in my uh, Peter Crimmins biography I'm writing at the moment, there uh, there's a game like that in the seventies where where uh, they, I know they go into the rooms after the game and they're actually celebrating a draw because they didn't think they'd get close, and then someone comes down and says, "Oh, you've just you've actually lost by a point." Like so, it was still happening then. Yeah. So, <laughs> Yeah. So. Uh, well, speaking of Hawthorne, that, uh, that, uh, that's a good segue into round eight, where um, I think I'd have more, I, I'd enjoy this more nowadays if we did it to Hawthorne, beating them by 106 mm. points at Windy Hill. Mm, um, yeah. back, back in the 40s, uh, kind of everyone was thumping the Hawks, so it didn't really matter. But yeah, yeah. So it's, a, it's a nice big win, though. Yeah, and it's a it's a period where Essen are all, not, not necessarily with Hawthorne, but they're, they're keen to really exert their dominance over teams that have exerted it over them for so long. So Hawthorne's the unlucky one there, but uh, but just against any of those teams that have flogged them, Carlton, Collingwood, Melbourne, Richmond, through the 30s, uh, I, I, I get the impression there was a bit of a revenge in uh, wanting to uh, get them back. And Hawthorne do that later on in the 60s and 70s to all the teams that have belted them like we did. Yeah. Um, no, it's good. Like it's, it shows Essendon's really putting the foot down and not not afraid to just kick big scores and bury teams. Mm, mm, yeah, yeah, for sure. But, but then it's the opposite the next week, isn't it? Mm. Against uh, against the uh, the Saints. At uh, again, that's the second oh, yeah. round, like Yarraville, they play at Turak Park, the Saints, because <laughs> yeah. they couldn't use uh, Junction Oval at the time. Yeah. Um, as you can see, there's about yeah, 4,000 people there. So it wasn't a huge crowd. It wasn't a big bench. Again, if you drive past that ground, it's tiny, but uh, you make do, I guess. But to drop that, drop a game to the Saints at that point was unheard of, really. And uh, it was probably acted as a bit of a wake-up call for because uh, we were we were on top at the time and we stayed on top. But the Saints, uh, you know, that that's a game that they would have just walked up expecting to win. So that's yeah. a bit of a setback. 
Yeah, and a bit of complacency around the team at that stage mm-hmm. as well. I think the weather was supposed to be pretty ordinary on that day. If you look at the six goals to four goals, it's pretty uh, pretty low scoring. As yeah, well. yeah, for sure, yeah. The rest of the season kind of seems to be pretty regulation wins apart from the game against Carlton, which is, uh, I think, round 14. Yeah, and that's the game that... Uh, that's the game I think sits in Dick's memory at the end of the season because Carlton... They didn't start all that great at the start of the year and they come home late in the year and he's he was a bit fearful. I, I think it's because of that loss. He's a bit fearful that he didn't want to have to play them. And the quirk in the whole season is that the finals were going to be at Princess Park, which is Carlton's ground. So uh, and he, he was nervous about... Which Essendon can't win at either. We haven't won there for years. That's right. Yeah, it had been a while. So they... They, uh, Dick's probably, I reckon he's pretty nervous looking ahead thinking uh, we do not want to play Carlton on their home deck. So at that point, with a couple of rounds to go, he's he's getting a bit nervous. Yeah, so they they, uh, they thumped us by what was it, 50, 53 points. And then uh, the Sporting Globe came out and said, I don't think Essendon will win a game in the final series. They're the weakest side in the four. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's a huge, uh, huge statement. I was... Blown away when I saw that because uh, Essendon, they were on top and they only just, you know, they were still equal top but just behind by percentage. But they, uh, and but Carlton had smashed them. They had like, what is it, 38 shots to 20. So they, yeah. they should have won by a lot more. So I, I reckon, yeah, he's really fearful at that point. But it, it's probably acted as a pretty crucial wake-up call at, a, at, at the right moment. But then we get to finals and we, uh, we get knocked <laughs> off by the Tigers in the first, uh, first week. Yeah, which uh, when you jump ahead to the next season, it's, there's a quirk in the system where uh, the reverse happens. So, but you're right. The um, Essen went in. Uh, well, they probably weren't. They finished on top, but they probably weren't favourites because the media still doubted whether they had the physicality that Richmond had. And, and so after that game, there was a sense of, well, I think we've been proven right here. Even though after the game, Dick Reynolds came out as like, "No, nah, we're gonna we'll meet them in the grand final," and and I'll tell you what, we're gonna beat them by quite a bit as well. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I I said he didn't make brash statements like like the confident Hayden Bunton did, but it, yeah. it's it's in the press, and I he probably had a ghost writer that beefed his stories up a bit, but uh, I don't think Dick would have been that um, boastful, but it, it really set a tone because because of what happens over the next two weeks, that uh, it was a it was a statement that he was obviously looking to um, give a positive view to his teammates going forward. Um, so, yeah, they, they beat South Melbourne in the prelim. They face Richmond again in the grand final. And, you know, like you said, we bury them in the grand final. 53-point win. Yeah, well, just on the prelim final, mate, at half time, uh, South Melbourne's five points up. So we're we're a little bit uh, nervous. And I, I was very fortunate to sit down with Ted Lahane, who was, I think he was about 18 in 1942. He only died a couple of years ago. Ted, a lovely, lovely man. And he he was a young centre forward. And he, he could clearly still remember half time in the rooms. And I've... Um, I've got it here, what he said to me. He said um, he said it was one of Dick's most stirring speeches in his short time as coach. Um, he, he, at halftime, Dick gave us a real rousing up. He really told us what he expected in very direct terms. And that's the only time I can recall Dick really named players and got stuck into everybody. And uh, after that, they went out and kicked seven goals to one in the third quarter and sort of booked their ticket for the grand final. And um, uh, Ted told me, he said, that was through Dick that sort of spurred everybody on that we got home. So that was uh, that was his real first serious test, I guess, as a coach. And he, he inspired his players. And then I guess the inspiration, like they just continued on the next week, didn't they? Yeah, a quarter time, tough tussle in the first term. And then, uh, again, Second quarter sort of sets the game up. They kick six goals to, or six eight to two goals, and that just blew the game wide open. And um, the irony is that Dick had grown up being a Carlton supporter. He spent so much time at Princess Park, and his crowning moment happens on Princess Park. You know, yeah. so I reckon there's a bit of he, he must have felt a bit of symbolism there throughout the day when he finally secured uh, that famous premiership. 
Um, would you say the 1942 premiership is like Dick's biggest achievement? Um, I would have thought so, but then he, from what I found that he'd said after the 1949 flag, that uh, I reckon that one takes the cake because, uh, and you'll talk about it down the track, but they they were they only snuck into the four. They were. Um, they struggled halfway through the year. The media had written him off as being too old and too slow and he was struggling with a bit of injury and then they come home and just had a magical final series led by Coleman and uh, and won the flag and he said afterwards that was his most special moment in footy. Um, but do you don't... It wasn't... It was a bigger achievement, you think, than 42? Um, because I at that time, yeah. Yeah, at that time, I think 42 because of uh, he just desperately wanted a premiership for so long and, and just how much the Essendon community just loved it. So I can uh, – but by the time it got to 49, he's that bit older. He's lost the 47 and 48 premierships uh, in games they probably should have won. And then uh, – so he's probably thinking, gee, I'm, I'm running out of time here. And then – then halfway through the year, he's completely written off. No one thinks they're a chance. Then they come home and just dominate the September. So I get the feeling uh, when he looked back years later, 49 sat more stronger in his memory. Yeah. yeah okay. But, yeah. He, but, but he got to play 42 with his brother as well. So yeah. that was a special. That would have been, I, I imagine, at the time. And when they went home and uh, around family, they would have been pretty, uh, pretty chuffed to have all been part of that day. Plus, there was like we hadn't won a grand final since '24 as well, so it was quite a big drought in terms of Essendon Football Club. That was our biggest ever. Yeah, it was. Yeah, and it stayed that way until uh, the '65 to '84 wait, which was 19 years, and uh, we've just uh, ticked past it this year. So, uh, yeah. or we're about to tick past it this year. So we're about to have our worst. And as we, you and me know, it's been a long 20 years. So you can imagine how long that and they've. Supporters have had to go through the depression, and now the war's on them. And yeah. so the the joy that they must have felt at winning a premiership uh, after the shocking years of the thirties and and the yeah. fallout of the bribery scandal in the twenties. And so yeah. You, yeah, it's it's probably hard to imagine just how much joy it brought to the people at the time. <laughs> well, like probably what we'll feel next time Essendon win a flag. <laughs> That's, right. That's exactly right. <laughs> I think yeah. we were uh, we were a bit spoiled growing up in the nineties, where Essendon it was just every year we were in the finals. We just assumed we'd make the finals, and we always did. Yeah, and I've I've uh, had the good fortune of interviewing Kevin Sheedy a couple of times, and uh, when Sheed's reels off his feats uh, up to two thousand and one, even just up until two thousand one, we we're in the in the grand final or the preliminary final almost every second year. Like it was an in, insane. We were. We were just blessed by um, even a semi-final or a qualifying final. Like, there's only, I think, two or three times that we missed the finals in those 20 years, that he first 20 that he'd been there. So you and me, we were, we were just, we probably, I don't know if we took it for granted, but you oh, just expected we that we were, Yeah, I think it's only just starting to, even for the last few years, we probably thought we're still a powerful club and we've, you know, we're a successful, but in modern history, we're, we're not at the moment. So it's... Oh. Um, it's it's something that I think we're starting to sink in. We, and I guess our kids, like that generation, hasn't really known any success for Essendon. So no. it'll be a completely new experience for them if we ever uh, finally get another premiership. At least, uh, at least Carlton's in the same boat. Yeah, well, that's a good thing there. <laughs> that's about it because uh, we haven't got much else to cling to at the moment. No. Um, Although this year coming up, sorry, mate, this year coming up is the 150-year anniversary of the club's history next next yeah. year so i think i think next year we'll be able to do a lot of talking about the the great success we've had over the years so there'll be some fun times ahead to Absolutely. talk about at least yeah yeah um was there anything that surprised you about dick reynolds in the research and the, the writing of the book yeah there was lots i mean i i assumed i assumed going in that he was famously known as king richard after he probably won his second or third Brownlow, so in the 30s. But he actually wasn't dubbed King Richard until uh, his last season, 1950, and uh, and his last game, well, his, one of his last games, the grand final in 1950. That was – so I was – I kept looking throughout the newspapers thinking it's going to be mentioned soon, mentioned soon. But, yeah, we've got all the way through to 1950, and that's when they start Wegg and Wells, the two cartoonists, the probably the two most well-known ones at the time. They – they started um, 
speaking about uh, or drawing cartoons with uh, the king and then and then it sort of grew from there and some supporters took a crown into him at his workplace and it, it just the, the the myth of the king richard uh title grew from there so i was surprised that it took that long and um there's one other thing that uh, i love this stat I, and i had no idea and only his son graham uh alerted me to it but no one else had ever really heard of it at the time but to his in his in Dick's lifetime to 2002. So when was he born? 1915 to 2002. Um, there was only one player that played 300 games, won a Brownlow, and won a Premiership, and that was Dick. He's the only player for that all those years, and he died in 2002. And since 2002, we've had another nine. Uh, I think it's nine. I've got them here. I don't know how many you could name off the top of your head, but um, Kevin Wanganeen. Uh, not not in order here, but Gary, Kevin Wanganeen, Gary Ablett Jr., Shane Crawford, uh, Jimmy Bartell, Mark Rusciuto, Simon Black, uh, Jason Akamanis, uh, Sam Mitchell and Adam Goods. So all those guys have happened after Dick. But for decades, uh, no one achieved that triple feat. It's, it's quite an amazing stat. I love that one. That's a great stat. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, who is... We'll get, we talked about this bit before. Who was the better player, Hayden Bunton or Dick Reynolds? Well, I think for longevity, in my view, and I'm probably biased, but Dick, but Hayden, for those who saw him play in Western Australia where he wins another three Sandover medals, and um, obviously, obviously he was a pretty, uh, pretty dominant player, but I don't know, do we judge? It's hard to just judge players on six... Yeah, well, that's yeah, that's that's the thing. And but I, as, as great as Bob Skilton was, you know, he never got a premiership. So how do we justify who's better in that sense? But I, I'd, you'd you'd much rather have Reynolds' record because of the premierships, even if he gave back the Brownlows. So that would be the the key: the four premierships, and uh, I think he was in ten grand finals. One was a draw. So it's a pretty stunning record in that sense. As captain coach as well, a successful captain coach, which I don't think Bunton could ever really do. He was more about individual success, whereas Reynolds was all about the team in the end after he after the thirties anyway. Yeah, and that was the I think I've, I've read some some stuff on Hayden, and and that was probably one of the criticisms from his teammate from his teammates was that he probably wasn't as um, sharing, but on the field I think he liked to do a lot of it himself, but. When you're as good as he was, you're probably <laughs> and your your team wasn't playing finals. You're probably just taking it on on your own uh, and just going with it yourself anyway. So I can understand that, but um, Dick certainly inspired the likes of Hutchie and so many others. Jack Jones always spoke very highly of him. Ted Lahane that just found a way to lift, and and that was one of the things that did surprise me. You, you expect him to have highs and lows, but he just seemed to have high after high after high. He just was so good so often. So that yeah. that, that amazed me, yeah. Um, look, I won't go too much more into Dick Reynolds because we're only up to 42, so I'm not going to uh, spoil things for any of your listeners. Um, but you have been part of a Bombers podcast in the past. Is that still happening? Yeah, no, we, we recorded some for an upcoming... Oh, for the 150-year celebrations, yeah, we recorded some podcasts with some guys. So I uh, I was privileged the club asked me to do it. And uh, hopefully, though, they've come together quite well. I was, yeah, it was fantastic. We got a few guys over from interstate, your Graham Mosses and Jeff Blethen, and nice. uh, and spoke to them. I got to interview um, Gavin Wanganeen and Joe Watson and Tim Watson and so Simon Madden. So it was uh, hopefully there's some good stuff coming up, yeah. Yeah. Did you? Uh, were you just being a fanboy when you meet all those guys? Yeah, yeah. Just took the took the footy cards in and you sign this. Nah, nah. It's again, you you reach a point where you you feel comfortable to be able to ask the questions and not uh, not get lost in what you're doing. And uh, they're all such genuine blokes, Maddie Lloyd and those guys. They're just they're really uh, great to speak with. So I uh, I really appreciated being offered the opportunity to do that. Um, and can we expect any more wrestling books out of you at any stage? Yeah, I'm not meant to give too much <laughs> much away, but again, we've got the 150 year coming up, so hopefully there'll be a publication around that um, that the club's keen to do. So, yeah, chipping away, mate. Very nice. No, good to hear. Um, well, we might leave it there. I think we've uh, had a pretty comprehensive chat for the last hour. 
Yeah, time goes quick when you start. That's what I mean with your five-hour interviews and things. You look at the clock and go, heck, I, uh, I didn't expect that. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Um, no, look, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Um, look, I'll, um, I might leave you there, but if we um, – maybe maybe we'll chat to you again soon if we have anything else that comes up about Dick Reynolds and, you know, 48 or 49 or 50. <laughs> yeah, there's so many. Uh, 46 is another ripper. That's yeah. an amazing – performance that year and then there's some controversial grand final losses and different things so happy to chat mate awesome no i really appreciate you taking the time thanks a lot to find out more about the kick to kick team and the sources we use visit our website www.kicktokickpodcast.com you can contact us via email at kicktokickpodcast at gmail.com or find us on twitter and instagram under at kicktokickpod thanks so much for listening